This episode of the Blackstick Global Podcast is sponsored by Blackstick Global Passport. Join aspiring Black expats, expats, and repats, where you can build community, get resources, and gain support along your journey abroad. You're invited to join Blackstick Global Passport. Inside Passport, you'll find exclusive workshops on everything from expat taxes, financial planning, insurance, job boards, accountability check-ins, and more more. You can even take Passport on the go with our app available for iOS and Android devices. Just click the link in the episode you're listening to or visit blacksitglobal.com and click on Passport. See you inside. People thought I was crazy. They were like, oh no, Hillary's going to win. No, he's going to win. They're framing it for Trump to win. Y'all need to make a game plan. I'm making a game plan. I don't know what y'all going to do, <laughs> but I'm getting out. <laughs> he got elected. You know, it's like, okay, this is about to be Jim Crow 2.0. They're trying to have us in these fields picking cotton again. Maybe that was a little extreme, but that's the way I felt, right? And once it's unleashed, it's going to be hard to contain it again, right? Because these people have been dormant for like 50, 60 years since the civil rights era. Close your eyes and imagine living a life you love, unapologetic and unbothered, free from daily microaggressions from Karens and Kens, free from the fear of police brutality and systemic racism. Wouldn't that feel amazing? Now open your eyes. What if I told you that it's possible? Hear inspiring stories and get the actual blueprints from brothers and sisters of the diaspora who are living out their wildest dreams abroad. You've heard the term, now be inspired by the movement. I'm Krishan Wright, and this is Blacksit Global. I'm excited for this episode of the Blacksit Global podcast. You might know my next guest as an author and historian, but you probably already have it on your bookshelf. It is called We Out, Volume 1, The Blueprint, How to End Our Abusive Relationship with America. And with that, I am proud to welcome to the podcast author Jay Freedom, who is joining us today from Mexico. Welcome to Black Sick Global, Jay. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to speak with you. It's been a long time coming. I was so excited to have this conversation, as I mentioned at the top in my intro, but I want to like ground people in your story. You have so many layers to your story. I grew up in Louisiana, Memphis, Tennessee, Baton Rouge. You know, life is different in the deep south, you know, so our experiences are very different compared to like people in the north um i graduated from well, i got my master's and was expecting to have like all these job offers and all this stuff and like i moved to dc and it's like you know it's very optimistic and then you know reality hit <laughs> like wait a minute you still black <laughs> So I ended up going to the like the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March or 25th anniversary, something like that. And there was a speaker there that kind of resonated with me. He's like, you know, I got my bachelor's, I got my master's, I got my Ph.D., but I'm still another, you know what, with a bachelor's or you know what, with the master's and a, you know what, with a Ph.D. So I was like, wait a minute. That makes sense. Um, and I just started thinking about different experiences and things that were happening. And I was like, it just dawned on me that like, no matter what I do, I'm still black in America. So what are my options? What can I do to take myself out of that where I can experience freedom? 
There's so much there. When you look at African-Americans as a whole, but specifically African-American women, we are the most educated demographic. My mom came up in the Great Migration, and so there was this definite big emphasis on education. And as you get these degrees, there'll be more opportunities. But then when you achieve those goals, oftentimes, regardless of where your career pursuits take you, you are confronted with the reality that you are Black in America. And so while you have the same or more credentials than it may be your white counterparts, you're not able to reap the same level of opportunities or rewards. Correct. There's so much to unpack on that one. <laughs> Black women, we, we carry the load in basically all aspects of society. Everything from the business world, to personal families and, um, you know, aunties raising the kids. We can go back even further and look at, you know, like in the 80s and 90s with mass incarceration uh, or the beginnings of it with the three strikes and all of that stuff. It took the black male out of the family. It took him out of the equation. Either the streets got him or the prisons got him. And then for like silly stuff, you might get a 50-year sentence for, you know, a nickel bag of weed back then with the harsher penalties. Even back even further during slavery, we carried the load. We carried the load for our blood families and adoptive families. And we also carried the load for the white man, for the master, right? We fed his children. We took care of his family. We even had to lay with him. You know, it wasn't consensual, but we even had to lay with him. We had to console him. Uh, when he got sick or his family got sick, we had to take care of him and all of them too. Wet nurses, all of that stuff, cooks, cleaning. We've been carrying the load in American society since its inception. And bringing it to the modern era, the mass incarceration and, you know, I guess so-called better opportunity for education and things of that nature, we got kind of, in a way, sucked into achieving the American dream, but doing it basically alone, right? So... In a nutshell, we carry the load. <laughs> and the load has caused Black women to take on, to your point, more than our fair share of the load and has fractured in many ways, um, not only our home, when you look at like the, the nuclear system, but even our relationships outside of like, you know, romantic relationships. I mean, just interpersonal, intercultural relationships with the black male. Really, the only legalized slavery in America now is the criminal justice system. Yeah. And so when you think about historically how black people have been treated in America, when we look at Juneteenth and how long it took for the last enslaved people to realize that they were no longer enslaved. Right. When you look at systems that are in and were in place to ensure that there is always a disparity, whether we're talking redlining, the infusion of drugs into our communities, reports from the government, like the Monaghan report that really was degrading Black women and really programs like public assistance 
that you couldn't benefit from if the male was in the home. So there was a concerted effort to extricate the black male from the black family. When you put all of that pressure on a system, a family system, a family unit, of course, it's going to fracture. When you're going through it, you're not thinking like, oh my gosh, this is something that's being done to me by my government or being done to me by the system. You're just trying to survive, right? Right. And whether it's your children, they're not thinking, oh, this is what's going on. They're thinking, oh my gosh, my dad's not here. My mom's crying or she's working or I'm a latchkey kid. You're on the receiving end of these isms. And so for me, it's been an awakening and an enlightenment coming to the conclusion, which is where I think you arrived at, that this situation for us here is not healthy and basically could be best described as toxic. We'll be right back. Did you know that family travel has the incredible power to shape our children's worldview and create lasting memories? In a world where representation is often lacking, it's essential for our children to see themselves reflected in every aspect of life, including the stories we tell about travel. Introducing the Travel of Legacy podcast, where we're rewriting the script by celebrating the diverse voices of black and brown family travelers. Each episode of Travel of Legacy is a testament to the enriching power and the joy of exploration in black and brown communities. So journey with us and subscribe now. Yes, very toxic. Uh, It just, it literally hit me one day. I was like, I'm not going to be able to win. (laughs) I just, it's it's not designed for me to win. So what, what if, what if I leave? You know, and I started thinking about like, cause you, you don't hear about regular people leaving. You hear about like people like Josephine Baker, James Baldwin, uh, Quincy Jones, you know, we hear about famous people leaving um, and exploring their creative side and all of that good stuff. But what about regular people who just want to thrive? Um, I started digging around and I found out that like after World War One, World War Two, even Vietnam and Korea, some black folks stayed, you know? So I was like, well, what if I like go somewhere and stay? <laughs> you know, uh, initially I didn't find a lot of African-Americans who were leaving. It was all like white expats. But I ended up finding a guy, he lived in Tijuana. I don't remember his name, but I was intrigued. We like binge watched all of his stuff on YouTube. Um, and then we, we were just like, all right, let's go. I realized once Trump, well, actually before he got elected, I, I actually called that. People thought I was crazy. They were like, oh, no, Hillary's going to win. No, he's going to win. They're framing it for Trump to win. Y'all need to make a game plan. I'm making a game plan. I don't know what y'all going to do. <laughs> But I'm getting out. <laughs> he got elected. You know, I was like, okay, this is about to be Jim Crow 2.0. They're trying to have us in these fields picking cotton again. Maybe that was a little extreme, but that's the way I felt, right? And once it's unleashed, it's going to be hard to contain it again, right? Because these people have been dormant for like 50, 60 years since the civil rights era. He's emboldened these people to come out of the woodworks and just, you know, just live their best racist lives, come out the racist closet. You know, I was like, I can't, I can't live like this. I'm like coming up on 40 soon, you know, midway between my lifespan. And I know that I don't want to live like this. 
the rest of my life. And so we did a little research, picked Mexico. I'm actually in Cancun. It's close. You know, I can get to New Orleans. If I'm lucky enough to find a direct flight, I'm in New Orleans in an hour and a half. But, you know, normally it's like four to six hour flights, you know, layovers and all of that good stuff. But I can get there relatively quickly. Life is basically, you know, the same, you know, it's a little different, but, you know, culturally it's very similar to Louisiana. It was a Spanish colony at one point. So before the French got a hold of it, it's pretty cool. I get to live with people vacation <laughs> and that's pretty awesome. You know, that's fantastic. And and it sounds for you like the tipping point was the election of 45, even though we have a new administration. To your point, we're still feeling the after effects and the aftermath of 45. One thing I will say, in my opinion, is he is the output of what was the seeding of this cauldron of toxicity with the inception of the Tea Party during the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And I think for people, depending on how engaged they are or aware of politics, they were, you know, busy going along in their lives and, you know, going along to get along, maybe on that, you know, desire to achieve what is the quote unquote American American dream. dream. (laughs) And yeah, right. And with that, comes a level of unfortunately complacency mm. right because if your life is comfortable you've got those marks of status whether mm-hmm. it's clothing or house or car or education or whatever and there are very few things that are infringing on your ability and your livelihood there is a level of complacency where you hear things on the news but you don't hear them mm-hmm And you see things, but it's not impacting you directly. And so while these things were in front of us before our eyes, not understanding that it was sowing the seeds for the birth or maybe rebirth Mm -hmm. of a system that, to your point, was like Jim Crow 2.0. And see, people thought we were safe under Obama. You know, they were like, oh, we've reached, a, you know, a post-racial nation and uh, we have a black president, a two-term black president. Even I want to say it was Mitch McConnell, I think he either him or Lindsey Graham. I don't remember which one. Uh, but, you know, he's like, we had a black president. Like, you know, what else do you want? You know, it's just like just the caucasity of him to even just you know, say that out loud. We know that's what they're thinking, but people just really got complacent, like you were saying with the complacency. And so they kind of let it sneak up on them, you know, thinking that they had achieved the American dream with all these material and status things. You know, when Joe Biden shows up on the scene to run, like he could have just sat down and taken his place in history and just be known as good old Uncle Joe. But he shows up to, I mean, it's like, you know, the only two people who can run are Trump and Biden, right? Like two old white men, like, like nobody else. People got tricked with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris got sucked into the nostalgia of Uncle Joe and the Chucks and Pearls with Kamala. And nobody bothered to check their records. 
Joe Biden has had a history of using the black community to get him elected, point blank. And this is what he's been doing for the last 50 years, 40, 50 years. I have long he's been in politics from when he was in his local legislature all the way to him being a senator. This is what he does. And so, I mean, you know, has a lot of people like, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. Like, no, the writing was on the wall. We have to first acknowledge and, and that's part of, you know, say being in a, an abusive relationship. Because I equate the relationship that we have with the United States as being an abusive relationship. They gaslight you. They gaslit the, the, the hell out of us with Juneteenth. You know, we didn't ask for Juneteenth. I saw something like Walmart had like Juneteenth ice cream. People have Juneteenth sale, just like they did with Martin Luther King's birthday. You know, why do you need a mattress sale for MLK Day? That makes absolutely no sense. Right. <laughs> but capitalism and racism are intertwined. You can't have one without the other. They need a class of people who believe that they're above another class of people in order to, to make the system work. Say, for instance, pay scales. Like Louisiana has some of the lowest pay in the country, right? Black people and white people just get like the short end of the stick with pay. But white people still get more than black people, <laughs> but they don't realize that they're both poor. So uh, I think as far as like the gaslighting with Juneteenth and, and all those things, he, well, Biden never did what he said, what he was going to do. You saw like the Asians get Asian hate bill passed. We're still trying to get legislation passed for us as well. And it's been several hundred years you know it's been 160 some years since the civil war it's been 50 60 years since the civil rights era and we're still treated as second class citizens which means like at this point and that's just, this is my personal opinion i see a lot of black folks are like coming to this as well but you have three options you can accept your place as less than in society as a second-class citizen, you can continue fighting a losing battle that you're not going to win. You, you're just not going to win. You're going to be met with, uh, you know, militarized police. You're going to be shot at. You're going to be beat, you know, you name it, thrown in jail, disappeared or whatever. Or you can strike out on your own. I mean, at this point, you don't have anything else to lose. It's 196 recognized nations on a planet. Pick one. Most of them you can get in on the strength of your passport without a visa required. And for a fraction of the cost. With inflation, the cost of living, everything going the way it is, supply chain issues, that's something that we need to think about. Because remember, our pay is not equal. So first we have, you know, African-Americans and white Americans making two different salaries. And then you have women and men making two different salaries. So if you're a black woman then you're making way less than even a white woman, right? So with the inflation and cost of living and everything going up, like you're, it, it's very difficult to maintain. Even if you were at a higher salary or you're a high earner, um, you know, you would think, oh, the, the pinnacle of success is six figures. Well, six figures is, you know, 
just over broke. <laughs> it's a job, you know. So these are all things that we have to consider uh, at this point. And the trick about it is with supply chain issues, whereas the United States doesn't really produce anything, a lot of the countries that they try to stop people from coming in from, guess what? They produce the stuff that the United States buys. <laughs> so they don't really have supply chain and food issues that the United States does. We didn't run out of toilet paper in Mexico. We had food. We had, you know, we didn't run out of avocados. We didn't run out of, you know, tomatoes. We didn't run out of stuff. Well, your shelves are bare. And every time I go home, I go in Walmart with my aunt, and it looks like the collapse of the Soviet Union with the empty shelves. It's crazy. I think if you're a person of color, a Black person in particular, there is a level of, this is bad, but I've been through worse. Yeah, and, we're born and, with it. Exactly. And so even though it is disruptive to go to a store and see the open shelves, you know, for people who have not experienced that, it's like a whole collective freak out moment. And to your point, when I look, especially when I look at, you know, different communities that I'm plugged in and people sharing their trips to the store and I'm seeing baby formula all around <laughs> Costco in Mexico and I then turn on the news and I see that, you know, we've enacted the Defense Production Act and we're going to countries in Europe to procure baby formula. And the I'm United like, States cannot feed its babies. Yeah. And, and, and the, the crazy thing about it is I'm like, OK, well, our closest neighbor and allies, you know, is first of all would be Canada right? The closest border. Like we couldn't go there. Okay. Maybe whatever. And I was like, well, maybe next to that where I know it is a lot of formula <laughs> is Mexico, right? To the South. That would be way hella closer than flying military planes or across the Atlantic <laughs> to go to Germany. But the optics, Right? They don't want help from the brown countries. Exactly. The optics, right? Because that's the only logical conclusion there. That's where I challenge people to not take what they see as face value and to understand that while you may be fearful that you can't make it somewhere else, the reality is there is a level of privilege when you are a black person and you're traveling abroad, especially, you know, with our dollar usually being stronger. We get the um, VIP treatment. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's something that, you know, we as people have not experienced and can be kind of uncomfortable at times. And then, you know, I hear in different communities and see different conversations in this conflict of, okay, if we are going to these other countries and with our dollars, you know, do we then become the colonizer and the gentrifier? I'm definitely, I have a strong opinion on this. I don't feel that we as Black people are in an economic position to become that which we despise. I don't know of a place in history where we have become the colonizer and the gentrifier because if that were the case then we wouldn't be having poverty in our own communities right. in America i believe that even the the mere discussion or thought about becoming that is is a waste of your 
mental bandwidth. It's more gaslighting. It's gaslighting. You're conditioned to believe this, that you're projecting the colonizers' views onto your own people. Hello. Because I'm like, well, that's no different than what you said before about, you know, Black women being the wet nurse and all of these, and you're worried as the enslaved about more about the enslaver than your own feelings. And so I think moving abroad is an opportunity to challenge yourself, who you are, your beliefs in the world, and more importantly, to decolonize your mind. You have the opportunity to enjoy life, Mm -hmm. to have a lived experience without fearing police encounters, Mm -hmm. with getting a real education, with being able to enjoy, if you choose to, employment pursuits or entrepreneurial pursuits or whatever your heart desires. Not only but the fruits of your labor without having to worry about, okay, I'm not going to be able to pay my car note if I take my family to Disney World. Hello. Or was your decision tree as it relates to choosing Mexico as a destination for you? Um, We looked at a couple of places, um, but we knew that no one would come visit. Uh, One, Thailand, another Australia. Um, We thought about somewhere in West Africa, Ghana, Senegal, and also Hawaii. Uh, Puerto Rico, too, but they had just had a hurricane and earthquakes and stuff. It's like, yo, the infrastructure just isn't there right now. I'm about that expat life, but I'm not about that developing infrastructure. We need the infrastructure there in order to be able to continue to work because we both uh, work remotely. So we have to have that, that at least, you know, decent internet, and, uh, no major power outages and stuff like that. So we're like, mm, let's go check it out. Let's go check out Mexico. We'd heard a lot of stuff about Mexico. We saw like a large African-American expat community, like kind of spread out all over Mexico with a, with a decent concentration in Mexico City. But we didn't want to live in Mexico City because of the earthquakes. Right? There's a volcano down there, too. <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't want none of that smoke. Um, but with hurricanes, we know what to do, being from Louisiana. So, we, you know, hurricane season's coming, stockpiling the big gallons of water, the, the big five-gallon containers. Get the canned goods, the, get the refried beans, tortillas, <laughs> rice and stuff in there, veggies, you know. So we know what to do with that. But when we came for a scouting mission, we we came like it was like Christmas time. So like in Mexico, they, they do it big for Christmas. They have like neighborhood gatherings and stuff. And so like the neighborhood, uh, we had an Airbnb and they like, you know, accepted us. <laughs> So it was like, wait a minute, this is how they don't, they didn't have to do that. And I always, I always say this, another thing, like every interview I've ever done, I've always talked about how even the dogs are happy, right? The dogs are just walking down the street, just smiling at you and just, Hey, what's up? And then walk on down, you know? Um, so they kind of sold us on it. We had both taken Spanish in high school, you know, we hadn't used it in 30 years. So, uh, but it was, it was relatively easy to transition the thing is like a lot of people just aren't open-minded about learning a new language learning a new culture you know i had somebody ask me oh what kind of food do y'all eat in mexico i'm like everything we eat at home plus mexican food you know so um anything you want it's it's basically the same they have a few like they don't have chick-fil-a here 
you know, you're not going to find a Whataburger, but, you know, Mexico City has a Popeye's, Cancun has a Church's, all the usuals, McDonald's, Olive Garden, Burger King, TGI Fridays, Chili's, like, you know, all the, the usual stuff you can get. There's Home Depot and then, you know, a bunch of local shops, Walmart. The produce is much fresher here. Though. The food, everything is fresher. That was one of the decisions, like the, the family, the community, the food and its proximity to our home in Louisiana. That's really important. And oh my gosh, the food. I've not journeyed to Mexico, but it's interesting when I have these conversations with different expats, the first thing, one of the top things is people always mention food, tasting fresher and plentiful, right? The access of it, you can either grow your own or there's, you know, different vendors and you're not getting things loaded with preservatives. The cleaning lady, uh, she came the other day and she, she cooks like, you know, for us, like, you know, because usually we order out like Wednesday or third, like midweek, you know, the midweek doldrums, you don't feel like cooking or anything. So that's when she shows up. She brought a whole chicken. I didn't see it. But my wife saw it. It was a whole chicken. I'm talking about she had to cut the feet off. She had to cut the neck off. She had to gut it, you know, clean it up and everything for the dishes that she was cooking. A whole fresh chicken. Like she wouldn't got that. I don't know where she got it from. I didn't ask any questions. But she, it didn't have any feathers when she brought it. But it was, you know, a whole chicken. (laughs) It's amazing. Oh my gosh. Like a whole chicken. <laughs> Cause when you said a whole chicken, I'm thinking, oh, you know, you're like, no, no, no. A whole chicken. No, it's a whole chicken. She brought the chicken. It, she killed it the night before. She she went in the backyard and got it before she got here. I don't know. I didn't ask no questions. <laughs> but she cleaned that chicken and she I guess she thought we wanted the chicken feed or something. We was like, no, because you know, some cultures it's a delicacy. Yes. So we don't we don't eat chicken feed. But we was like, nah, girl, we don't want chicken feed and you know, basura. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So you talked a little bit about acceptance and being there and feeling accepted. Do you feel that as a member of the LGBTQ community that you are more accepted in Mexico than your experiences in the United States? Or how, how does that come to life for you and your wife? To us, it's not a thing. Um, here, people mind their business. I can only speak on Mexico, but, you know, from what I've heard, like other people outside of the United States mind their business. You know, if it's a country that it's not, you know, uh, acceptable, like due to religion or whatever, um, as long as you're not, you know, just wide open out, you know, in the streets doing, you know, stuff, um, then you don't really have a problem. But nobody bothers us here. We've gotten more dirty looks at home than we have here. But a lot of the stuff, and just like at home, a lot of things are geared toward gay men. You know, we're we're older and more settled, so we don't we ain't in the streets no more. <laughs> so it's it's not a thing for. But even when we're out, one time we were at a resort uh, for I think for my birthday, and we were walking on a little pier, a little malacan, and we were holding hands, kind of watching the sun, and nobody bothered us. 
People mind their business. Yeah, as they should. It sounds like the lifestyle that you and your wife have cultivated for yourselves has afforded you this opportunity to have a fully fleshed life. You're living in HD, right? <laughs> you know, 4K or whatever it's up to now, right? <laughs> um, but you're able to be your full authentic selves and not mm-hmm. having to diminish or minimize an aspect of your identity in order to preserve someone else's level of comfort. Yeah. It's, but the, one of the things, though, that we find, and it only really happens when, when you encounter the non-melanated people here from the United States, they they tend to, and that goes back to people not minding their business because Americans love getting in your business. They always want to know what we do. They're like, oh, uh, you know, say we're on a plane or we're, you know, out and about and see them somewhere. They're like, oh, how long are you in town for? Actually, we live here. How long are you here for? <laughs> <laughs> Because we know you visiting. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that. And just their mouths, just, you know, they're floored by mouths wide open. I'm like, fix your face. <laughs> you know, sometimes I remember one time I was at the airport. I was coming back from home and a white guy was telling me, that I needed to f- fill out the papers. Well, we both have residency cards. So we're, we're both residents, legal residents, right? And so I was like, I don't need that. And he was like, literally following me down the corridor, like, you know, demanding that I complete the paper that he's filling out. And I, I didn't even know this dude. I'm like, I'm minding my business. He was like, you have to fill this out. And I'm like, I live here. I have residency. Not that it's any of his business. I don't go through that line. I go through the national line. You enjoy your vacation. And I kept walking. They still feel the need to police our presence in areas that they deem unacceptable for us to be there. And so they have to, you know, figure out what we do in order to determine if we're worthy of sharing the same spaces. And that that still bothers me. That still bothers me. As it should, because it goes back to what you were saying about that interaction where you don't owe anyone anything, right? You know, owe an explanation when you think about the jealousy that has fueled a lot of hatred and white supremacy in this nation is that whenever we as Black people achieve something on par or ahead of someone who is white, there comes this, like, how did you get that? You can't have that. I mean, we saw that come to pass with Black Wall Street, Mm -hmm. you know, was the fact that, oh, you know, they were doing their damnedest to make sure that, you know, Black people were not in their community, which basically was, you know, the line and how that area of Oklahoma, of Tulsa was even created. And then when you saw the banks and the shoe shine shops and these people were so these, rich, they had their own airplanes. Some yes. of them had, there was like three families that had black families that had airplanes in the 1920s. Yes. Airplanes, pianos, you know, clothes, mm-hmm. cars. And it was like, wait a minute. I'm over here struggling. They have this. And then it was like, okay, it goes back to 
what you're saying in the genesis of your book is that, oh, if I can't have it, you can't either. I'm that malignant narcissist. I am going to take away what you have. I'm going to destroy it. I think that we are in a situation today in our nation, in our lifetime, where you have to decide to your point of those three decision points where you want to sit on this spectrum. Because at the end of the day, regardless of who you are, where you live, there is a decision that needs to be made. We are at a tipping point. And how hot does the water have to get? Because it's boiling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's boiling. And I, I think that and especially a lot of us, this is what we know. We don't we don't know anything other than being in the in the hot pot, being in that cauldron. We don't realize that we don't have to be anymore. We don't have we never really we never really did. This is the first time that we really had the resources to actively participate in our own expat experience or our own decision to take our families out of of the situation because you remember like basically since we we're kids they like the propaganda mill you know tells us that you know the united states is the best country in the world you have the better quality the best quality of living you have american exceptionalism you have this 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 statistics don't lie so the the other nations you know in the meantime while they're sleeping on china and india and mexico and deeming them you know third world countries which i hate that phrase they slept on them and so they really believe that black and brown people are taking things away from them so it's 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 like like you said if i can't have it you can't either and a lot of people never recovered from the 2008 recession. And so that kind of changed their status. But in their minds, there's still a peg over the, you know, black and brown people. Yeah. And and think, you know, as we go through this year and, you know, it's really just a, a matter of time before they actually call it a recession, you know, from a technical yeah. perspective. But obviously anybody sitting in the United States and is listening to this show or seeing that, you know, everything is costing more and more, that there are other opportunities. And like you said, there's, you know, almost 200, (laughs) you know, 200 countries, take your pick, you know, decide what it is that you feel you need to have based on the lifestyle that you wish to enjoy and use this time to get out, to get out there, to explore, to get in these communities, to ask questions, and also to expand and educate yourselves. And for those who are listening, I will link We Out Volume 1, The Blueprint, How to End Our Abusive Relationship with America in the show notes for this episode. As we start to close, Jay, I want to ask you, um, is there going to be a volume two? Yes. So it was in the works before the pandemic, but it totally had to go on a back burner with my work responsibilities, uh, teaching in a pandemic. So now we're back on. <laughs> um, 
I don't have a date yet. I want to say around the end of the year, first part of the year, volume two, uh, removing the shackles, talking about the deprogramming, the de-stressing, the decompressing of uh, being out. Also, you know, living uh, amongst another culture and learning different languages, different experiences, experience some some is most of it's been cool but sometimes you know you find out about stuff where you don't you don't know like you know the electric bill comes every two months and so you're like hey wait a minute i haven't gotten a bill uh, and then you come home and the lights are off <laughs> you know <laughs> that kind of stuff you know um and a workbook too so it's kind of like an addendum to the volume one but I haven't decided if I'm going to do the addendum or just do a separate workbook so people can kind of do the worksheet and kind of make their notes and do their planning within it. I haven't decided that, but that one will come out before volume two does. So it's in the works and it's it's closer and closer to completion now. That's awesome. And I cannot wait until okay. that comes out. It needs to be out there. And thank you for putting what was sitting on your heart in putting it so we can all educate and benefit from the enlightenment. Jay, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this opportunity to speak with you, to hear about your experiences, and to talk about a topic that is very top of mind, more so now than ever before. So for that, I am deeply in your gratitude. Igualmente, amiga. Same to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Blacksit Global Podcast. For more information on today's episode, be sure to visit our website at blacksitglobal.com. It's not only possible to live out your dreams unbothered and in full color, it is your birthright. Are you trying to sort out health plans, banking, VPN, and other connectivity for your move abroad? Well, have no fear. We've got you with the Move Abroad Starter Kit. Get yours today at blacksitglobal.com resources. That's blacksitglobal.com resources.